Better. Good to see all of you here this morning. Surprise um, for those of you in the adult class. Uh, we've just kind of come in and made ourselves at home this morning. Uh, but thank you for letting us come in and, and use your place today. And um, you can blame Merrill for whatever happens this morning because he deserted you and left you with me. Those of us that are in next on a regular Sunday, they just they already know what they're in for. So they're used to it. Um, but it's uh, it's an honor to be in here with you guys today in big church. Now I can't say whenever we dismiss, I can't say, okay, now we'll see you in big church in a little while because, well, we'll already be here. Um, today is, uh, for us, we're just going to jump right in, next folks, where we've left off. We're in the middle of a series in next called Losers Like Us. And this is our seventh day in this series. And by the way, let me just mention, I'm going to give you guys a little bit of a break next week because Aaron Duran's going to be speaking in next, um, this following Sunday. So don't miss that. It's going to be great. Aaron always does an incredible job. And I'm really looking forward to hearing him next Sunday. But um, day seven in our series, Losers Like Us. And this comes from the book called Losers Like Us, Redefining Discipleship After Epic Failure by a guy named Daniel Hochhalter. And we just call him Dan because Hochhalter's hard to say. And the theme verse that we've pulled from the book for this entire series comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. And in the message, it says this. This is the message translation. It says, take a good look, friends at who you were when you got called into this life, because I don't see many of the brightest and the best among you, not many influential and not many from high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses, chose these nobodies, chose these losers, to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies. So just a quick review. For those of you that were in next last week and didn't pay attention, and for those of you that weren't in next last week because you were in here, um, each week what we're doing is we're looking at one of the 12 disciples and identifying what it is that makes him a loser. And then asking the question, why this guy? Why would Jesus choose this guy, this, this loser, to be on his team. And one answer to that question, one, one reason that we focused on is that Jesus did it to give all of us hope. Hope in that he loves us and desires us, and he loves and desires the real us, not the polished Sunday morning dressed up social media version of us, but the real us. He did it to tell us that Look, not only do I, do I love you, but I, and not only do I love the real you, but I love and want to use the real you. One of, on, on those days, whenever you feel like you are just the greatest of all time, you're the champion of the world, and you've got everything in your pocket, I love you on those days, and I want to use you on those days. And those days, whenever you feel like the biggest loser on the planet and like you can't do anything right to save your life, you know what? On those days, I love you, and I want to use you. Jesus says, I changed the world with these 12 disciples. And they were far from perfect. They were far from what the society back then called winners, and they're far from what our, our society today would, calls winners, would call winners. And Jesus says, so look, if I can use these losers... 
to turn the world upside down, to radically change the culture and the time for my kingdom, then I can use you to impact your family, to impact your workplace, to impact your school. So we've been trying to learn from losers. And so far, we've looked at a total of seven disciples. Now, for those of you who've been in next, I'm going to run through these very quickly, just so the folks that haven't been with us can get a quick idea about what we're talking about. We looked at two nobodies, James, the son of Alphaeus. So we're not talking about James as Peter, James, and John, the inner three, and we're still not talking about James, the brother of Jesus. We're talking about the other, other James, nobody. We're talking about Judas Thaddeus, uh, Simon the Zealot, Andrew the Shadow Dweller, because every time in Scripture he's mentioned as Peter's brother, and sometimes his name isn't even called. He's just referred to as Peter's brother. We talked about Philip the Pragmatist, Matthew the Uber Loser, the Super Loser, the Biggest Loser. Why? Because he was a tax collector, and nobody likes tax collectors. And then last week we talked about Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, And if you missed any of those, um, go back and check out the podcast because probably the one that you missed is the one that you need to hear. I would encourage you to do that. Last week, last week was really unique because we we talked about Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, and we we just had a lot of questions, just a lot of questions about Judas. I mean, how could this man who is portrayed as so diabolical and inhuman in almost every passion play. Anybody been to a passion play before? An Easter drama? What's Judas look like? He's always in a black robe. He's always got his hair slicked back. He always looks like he just got back from a Satanist convention. But everybody else on stage is totally okay with that. He's just portrayed as just being this such a one-dimensional cartoonish character. How could he have had a personality that was so black and white? You know, Jesus spent an entire night in prayer in Luke chapter 6 before choosing these 12, and Judas Iscariot was a part of the answer to the prayer that Jesus prayed. So you're telling me that God made flesh, got his prayer lines crossed somehow whenever he chose Judas Iscariot as a disciple? I don't think so. We know from Scripture that Judas wasn't this all-bad, one-dimensional character because the Bible says that whenever Jesus was condemned, that Judas was filled with remorse. That's not a one-dimensional evil person. And it's pretty serious remorse, too, because we know that Judas killed himself over it. With, with feeling remorse like that, surely there's, there's hope for repentance somewhere. Surely there's, there's hope for for restoration somewhere along the line. And we didn't try to cause any controversy last week. We're just asking questions to try to reflect on the life of a man, not this cartoonish lurking villain that we so often see portrayed, but a human being who was chosen personally by Jesus to be his disciple. Who else in here has been chosen by Jesus? It's hard for us to think of Judas as being a disciple whenever all we see him as 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 Jesus' betrayer. But he was a disciple first. Now, what about the relationship? We had a lot of questions about Judas. What about the relationship between Jesus and Judas? Judas during those three years was Judas. Well, I mean, whenever he first answered the call, he wasn't a traitor. He traveled 
with Jesus. He watched Jesus heal cripples and, and cure lepers and cast out demons and calm storms and raise up dead people. Judas even participated in miracles. He walked with Jesus for three years. They ate together. They prayed together. They went to church together. I wonder if Jesus and Judas ever shared a laugh. Did Jesus love Judas the way that he loved the other disciples? Did Judas love Jesus? We just had a lot of questions about Judas. This is all from last week. But you know, the Gospels say that Judas betrayed Jesus. He didn't sabotage Jesus. He didn't trick Jesus. He didn't ambush Jesus. No, he betrayed Jesus. And betrayal is an unexpected treachery from Come on, class. A friend, a loved one, someone that you care about, someone who's close to you. So Judas and Jesus were, they were friends? I, I just wonder what type of eye contact took place between Jesus and Judas that night at the Last Supper before Judas left to betray Jesus to the Pharisees. I wonder what type of, type of eye contact they exchanged. And we're almost done with this little review, but I just wonder, why do we single Judas out as the villain? Why do we single Judas out? I mean, Peter betrayed Jesus three times. All of the remaining disciples ran off and hid during his trial and during his crucifixion, with the possible exception of John, who was there at the cross. They all deserted Jesus whenever he needed him most. So why is Judas the lowest of the low? Why, he's, why is he the worst of the worst? I mean, was Judas beyond hope and lost from the start? Some of these questions, folks, about Judas, are, they are sticky questions. But they're important because here's the deal. If Judas is beyond hope, if Judas was just doomed from the start, then anyone who has betrayed Jesus is doomed from the start and beyond hope. The story of Judas, it's, it's an ugly story, but it forces us to ask some questions. Do we truly believe, do we really believe that God's grace is deeper even than this, even than the worst betrayal? Do we believe that? Do we truly believe that forgiveness is extended to all sinners who ask for it? Well, folks, here's the deal. Let's flip the script here. If you believe that even Judas could be forgiven and even Judas could be restored and have hope, then that means you can be forgiven and you can be restored and you can have hope. We're just asking questions about Judas. And I can't reflect on the real Judas, not this Easter portrayal Judas, but I can't reflect on the real Judas without also reflecting on the power of God's grace and how much I need it every single day. So that kind of gives you a little bit of a backstory, you folks that are here in the adult class normally, about where we've been over the past seven to eight weeks. And this week, we want to do it again. We want to talk about the doubter. The doubter. The guy who says, when pigs fly. Who are we talking about? Thomas, yeah. You know, in certain parts of Africa, well, here in America, we say, yeah, right, when pigs fly. We call that an idiom. It's an idiom. It's an expression. In certain parts of Africa, they say this. They say, when horses grow horns. 
In Albania, they say on August 36th, yeah, right, on August 36th, the Palestinians say when salt glows, when salt glows, the Dutch say when Pentecost and Easter are on the same day, the French and their French accent say, in the week that has four Thursdays and when hens grow teeth. In the country of Georgia, it's when donkeys climb trees. In some Spanish-speaking cultures, it's when frogs grow hair. My personal favorite. In Russia, they say, when the crawfish whistles on the mountain. There you go. So apparently, guys, expressing doubt, especially when we hear something that's difficult to believe, that, that's a universal thing. And we're talking about Thomas today, a man so associated with doubt that we even have an idiom for him in our language, someone who is so frequently skeptical that they're called a doubting Thomas. A doubting Thomas. Thomas, what a loser. He's such a loser that we associate other losers with his name to show how much they're losers. It's kind of awful whenever you think about it from Thomas's perspective. I mean, how would you like it if your greatest moment of crisis and pain and your worst moment of faith, your most glaring character flaw, was used for the rest of recorded history to describe people's personal failings. I kind of wanted to use the names of people that would be here in class this morning, but then wisdom prevailed for the first time in recent memory. So I just did it this way. Um, he's such a murdering Matthew. Any Matthews in here today? If so, I'm sorry. She's such a lusting Lucy. He's a lying Larry. She's such a stealing Stacy, doubting Thomas. Such a doubting loser that we use his name to identify other losers who doubt. It's awful. But you know what? If we were all honest Abes or truthful Tinas here this morning, we'd all have to admit that we've, we've all had our moments of doubt. My biggest one so far in life, I'm leaving room for many more, but my biggest one came in August of 2011, and it was, it was, a, it was a strange time for me and a strange time for my family. Julia and I had um, made a final decision that had taken us, me, years, and, and she'd been about a year and a half on board to make this decision, but we left our former church where we had been for 20 years, and a week later, my dad's in the hospital with failing kidneys and a prognosis of dialysis for the rest of his life. Three days after that, my dad's on life support because he'd had some type of global anoxia and didn't breathe and it damaged his brain and that part that made Billy Billy wasn't there anymore and um, 
we had to finally make just that heartbreaking decision to move him to hospice. And they told us he's not going to survive the ride over there. And then dad, the crusty old Marine that he was, hangs on for another week. And then he's gone. And through all of that, and the angry and painful months that followed, just dealing with grief, dealing with the new realities of life, folks, I don't think I ever once doubted God's existence, but I would say that I doubted His intentions. Does that make sense to anybody? The great author and theologian C.S. Lewis experienced his own crisis of faith after his wife died. And he wrote, The danger I faced was not the danger of ceasing to believe in God, but the danger of starting to believe the wrong things about God. I began to wonder if God was a cosmic sadist. And folks, most of us have been there, some of us more than once at this point in our lives, those moments whenever our hearts are so wounded that they stream pain and anger and confusion right to heaven. And and it says, God, if this is your will for my life, then take it back. Because I don't want it, and I, I can do better by myself. And those kind of thoughts make some of us uncomfortable. And we'll start firing off salvos of Bible verses, man, trying to shoot down the flying doubt monsters before they land on us or land on somebody else. But how do you fight doubt with Scripture whenever Scripture itself is in doubt? It's what we call a catch-22. I don't know if y'all have noticed this or not. And and here's what what I'm talking about. Well, we know that all things work together for the good of those that... Come on, y'all help me out. But whenever everything's going wrong in my life and nothing seems like it's working out for the good and I can't see anything good coming of this, how does that Scripture come in and comfort me? How does that Scripture come in and make me feel better about my situation? Is this too real? How do you use Scripture to combat doubt whenever you're doubting what Scripture says? I don't know if y'all have noticed this yet or not, but sometimes people suffer. And sometimes the reason for their suffering remains a complete mystery. It's like there's never ever any, any explanation for why this person endures the pain and the hurt. And some of you right now are thinking about somebody. It might be yourself or a family member, somebody, a friend. But you're thinking to somebody, why are they going through that? Why did they endure that? There, and there's no explanation. And, and doubt creeps in. And then what happens is, because this is how messed up we are, we'll feel guilty about doubting God's intentions toward us and and feel angry that there's not any apparent reason or explanation for it at the same time. So I'm, I'm feeling guilty about being doubtful, but yet I'm still feeling angry because there's no explanation and we're just locked 
in this spiral. But you know, then on the other hand, our relationship with Jesus is described as just that. It's, it's described as a relationship. And if I can't be honest with him about my doubts, then I can't really call that a relationship. Because what type of relationship do you have if there's no honesty? So if dad's passing was some type of like divine test, then I'm pretty sure I failed it miserably. I said things to people and reacted in ways and I just, I handled a lot of things wrong in the middle of that stuff. Can I just, can I just be honest and say that sometimes I still struggle with trusting God? Thank you for nodding your sage heads. I'm assuming that that means that you feel the same. Even when, okay, but here's how messed, I, messed up I am, because y'all are, I mean, y'all are better off than I am. This is, this is just me, but this is how messed up I am. Even when things are going well, Amy Riddle, I kind of keep like that one eye slanted, looking off over to the side, waiting on the shoe to drop, because it can't stay this good for long. It's like you get this perverse sense of, aha, yes, I knew it was going to happen. Things just turn bad. Like pointing the finger at it, and, you know, now you're justified. That's crazy. Is anybody else in here crazy? No, put your hand down. Put your hand down. But I'll say, I will say this. I gained one important step through all of that mess that we, that we went through back in 2011. Whenever I encounter a brother or a sister who's dealing with doubt, that does not intimidate me at all. I understand the struggle. Most likely have thought and said the same things that they have thought and said. And maybe I didn't pass the test with flying colors like some super spiritual person, but I came out the other side. I might have clung to God by a thread, but I'm still here. And now I understand what others feel when they're in it. You know, we tend to forget this next part, but doubt is, is pretty common among people of faith. Doubt's a pretty common thing among the heroes of faith. In 1 Kings, you know, Elijah goes from that fire from heaven victory and validation on top of Mount Carmel with all the prophets of Baal one minute to saying, in the next minute, Lord, I've had enough, just take my life. It's like, what are you, bipolar? Man, what happened there? Doubt. In Matthew 11, John the Baptist goes from like, man, he's preaching repentance and people are coming to him by the droves and he's baptizing sinners and he's like having this faith-filled moment where he proclaims the Messiah, behold, the Lamb of God. And then he goes to prison and sends a bunch of messengers to ask Jesus, hey, look, are you the one that we're supposed to be looking for or do we need to look for somebody else? What happened? Doubt. Doubt happened. Abraham... Moses, David, Esther, Peter, they, they all had their moments of doubt. But Thomas, Thomas wins the prize. I mean, do we ever speak of Thomas in any other context other than doubt? I think every time I've heard Thomas's name mentioned, it's been associated with doubt. Nothing else ever positive. Thomas, is, he, he's a pessimist, and, and he's a skeptic, and his, his glass is always half empty and leaking out the bottom. 
His ship came in and he's waiting at the bus station. That's the story of Thomas's life. Three times Thomas speaks in Scripture and he expresses doubt. And this all happens in the book of John. So what we're going to do from here on out, I'm going to talk to you just about these three times that Thomas speaks, talk about how doubt is exposed. Then we're going to bring this home, apply it to the rest of us, and then I'll give you some next steps for this week. And I'm going to do all that in about 20 minutes, maybe a little bit less. So doubting Thomas, doubting Thomas. The first time that Thomas speaks and, and voices his doubt is, is in John chapter 11. And Thomas, he's been with Jesus for some time. He's been listening to him teach. He's been watching Jesus perform all these miracles. And Jesus reveals that he intends to travel to Bethany to awaken Lazarus from death. And in, in response, Thomas says, this is in John chapter 11, verse 16. In response, Thomas says, well, let us also go that we may die with him. What's he talking about? Is he talking about Lazarus? We're going to go die with Lazarus? Well, that doesn't make any sense. Why would Thomas think that they were going to die like Lazarus? No, I'm pretty sure Thomas means Jesus. Let's go with Jesus and die along with Jesus. Some translations in the New Living Translation, it even renders it this way, let's go with him that we may die with Jesus. Thomas, what is wrong with you, man? Why would you even say that? Because Lazarus and his sisters lived in Bethany, and that's just outside of Jerusalem. And in a previous visit, Jesus had been called a demoniac and a deceiver by the Jewish leaders. His teachings had sparked some pretty heated debates because at least twice mobs had picked up stones so they could stone Jesus. And the religious leaders were hatching a plot to have Jesus killed. And the disciples had witnessed all of that, and they probably knew about the plot. So they knew going back to Jerusalem is not good. Jesus is in grave danger going back to Jerusalem, and if we go with him, then we're in grave danger too. And so now Jesus wants to go back there, and Thomas says, what is this? Is, is this a strong statement of faith? Let's all go and die with Jesus and stand for the truth. Now, nah, maybe, but I don't think so. Because in my mind, Thomas says it the way I would have said it, with a hint of sarcasm. More like, if we go back to Jerusalem, they're going to kill us. So, Jesus is going, let's just get it over with. Thomas's next line appears three chapters later, so he's still alive. During the Last Supper, and, and the disciples... They don't know, see, they don't know that this is the last night that they're going to have with Jesus. But Jesus knows, and he's acting weird. He's, act, he's doing strange stuff. He's, he's doing like the lowest thing that can be done at dinner and washing people's feet. And, and, and the disciples, they're, they're confused and then he starts predicting that he's going to be betrayed by one of his own. And then he starts predicting that he's going to be denied. And then he starts talking about leaving. And Jesus says, this is in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. We're going to look at it in the NIV. He says, do not let, this is at the Last Supper, right? And, and he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Now think about how confusing and frightening this must have been for those 12 disciples. Is, is like Jesus like going away forever? I mean, we're just getting started and you're leaving. And it sounds like, Jesus, that the only way that we can be reunited with you is to somehow crack the code and figure out where and figure out how. This is a mean trick, Jesus. So Thomas, God love him, says exactly what everybody else was probably thinking. I need people like Thomas because I'm usually the one that says what everybody else is thinking whenever everybody else has the wisdom to keep their mouth shut. And so Thomas comes out in John chapter 14 and verse 5. He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? The message translation says it this way. Thomas said, Master, we have no idea where you're going. How do you expect us to know the road? See, Thomas, he, he lives in the real. He lives in the right now. He, he's a realist. He needs facts. He needs maps. He needs tangible directions. He needs Jesus to say, all right, look, you go one mile, you take a left, and then you go two miles and take a right at the golden mailbox, and you're there. Instead, what he gets <laughs> sounds like, well, it just, it's just this ambiguous, meaningless answer where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but my being. What? What does that even mean? Thomas doesn't get it. And the reason why he doesn't get it is the same reason why a bunch of us don't often get it. It's because Jesus is speaking of the other real. He's speaking of the eternal real, the heavenly real, and it's, it's an answer, and it's really the answer, and it's really the right answer, but it's an answer that Thomas can't understand yet. Because Jesus hasn't died. Jesus hasn't been crucified. Jesus has been resurrected. So, of course, it doesn't make any sense. And isn't that just like our lives? Whenever the answers he gives don't make any sense until later, Well, I didn't get any kind of amen on that. Y'all know it happens sometimes. Not all of the time, but sometimes your dumb self says, you know what, I see now why that happened. God really knows what he's doing. And then you've got those other times where he never explains himself and you just keep toddling along. The third time Thomas speaks, well, this is the line that makes him famous. Jesus has been, he's been just cruelly, savagely beaten. He's been crucified. His followers have been scattered. They're devastated. But now these other disciples are claiming that they have seen Jesus alive. Risen from the dead after three days. Come on, man. And Thomas, he, he just, he can't believe it. John chapter 20, verses 24 through 25, and again, we'll look at this in the message. It says, but Thomas, sometimes called the twin, which is what Didymus means in the Greek, 
one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So Thomas wasn't with them whenever Jesus showed up. The other disciples told him, we saw the master. But he said, unless I see the nails, the nail holes in his hands and put my finger in the nail holes and stick my hand in his side, I won't believe it. So, why was Thomas missing whenever Jesus appeared to the rest of the disciples? Where was Thomas? Why wasn't he there? Why didn't he get to see Jesus and and enjoy the, the joy of this newly discovered resurrection with the rest of the disciples? This is my opinion. My opinion. It's not in Scripture. My opinion. He just wanted to be alone. He was reeling. Thomas was this practical realist who had somehow managed to drag up enough hope and enough faith and pin all of his hopes on Jesus, and now Jesus was dead. And Thomas, he didn't want to go to group therapy, he didn't want to hug. He didn't want those consoling noises that people make whenever you're hurting. And he didn't want some kind of lame encouragement from a bunch of people that didn't know any more than he did about what was going on. He he just wanted to be left alone. And if he could have found a rock to crawl under, he probably would have. It's just my opinion, my opinion. Because I know how I get whenever life happens and throws you a curveball that you did not see coming. I want you to leave me alone. So when these other people, right, these other disciples, and all they do is remind Thomas of what he's lost, start blabbering about seeing Jesus alive, Thomas blurts out his his very honest feelings. Y'all can say what you want to, but I'm done with having my hopes dashed on the rocks. I'm not letting hope back into my heart until I can put my finger in the nail holes and put my hand in his side. Until then, don't bother me with this stuff. You guys might have the proof that you need, but it's not the proof that I need. That's not enough for me. And until I have the proof that I need... I'm not going down this road with you people again. Why is it that whenever Thomas doubts the resurrection, we seem to consider that like weak faith or something? I mean, he had been with Jesus for three years. He saw the miracles. He heard the teaching. He even accepted Jesus' deity, which to me is probably the most difficult thing to believe about Jesus. And Thomas had even seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. So surely, surely, Thomas could have trusted that Jesus could raise himself from the dead, right? But really? Would you? Would I? Now, eventually, Thomas's doubts are answered. Eventually, Jesus does show himself to Thomas. Read about it in John chapter 20, verses 26 through 29. Eight days later, 
Eight days later, his disciples were again in the room. This time Thomas was with him, and Jesus came through the locked doors, stood among them, and said, Peace to you. Then, oh, I love this, he focused his attention on Thomas. Take your finger and examine my hands. Take your hand and stick it in my side. Don't be unbelieving. Believe. Thomas said, my master, my God. Jesus said, so you believe me because you've seen with your own eyes. Even better blessings are in store for those who believe without seeing. He never explains himself, but you still believe. You don't know why, but you still believe. You don't pass the test with flying colors, but you hang in there, man. Eight days later, what must those eight days have been like for Thomas? I, in my mind, I, I, I see him kind of in the room, but not really with the rest of the disciples, just kind of brooding over there in the corner, listening to all these other people talk excitedly about Jesus. Oh, and did you see Jesus whenever he came? And Oh, and he was dressed this way, and he looked that way, and you couldn't even tell. And he's just sitting over there in the corner, just... Been me, Brian, I've been steaming. It had to have been painful and confusing for him. Well, why, why do they get to see Jesus? Why did Jesus show up to them? Why couldn't he come to where I was? Whenever I, I mean, does, does he not love me? Have I somehow disqualified myself from, I'm just, just thinking. But to his credit, Thomas is there. He's there in, in the middle of all of his doubts. He's still there with the rest of the disciples. He's still there. It's, you know, it's like something makes him stick around just in case. And in spite of the locked doors, Jesus shows up. In spite of your locked doors. Jesus has shown up, hasn't he? And in this story, there, there, there's this one tiny fact that stands out to me. Thomas is the only disciple that's mentioned by name. It's like all the rest of the disciples and the people in that room, whenever, they're just kind of nameless actors on the stage because this scene, this scene is just between Jesus and Thomas. Thomas needs to see the nail holes, and, and Thomas needs to touch the wound in his side, and Jesus obliges. He says, I'll give you what you need. And Jesus is not in the least bit offended or intimidated by the earthly doubts of an earthly man. And as Christians, we'll often hesitate to express doubt, not because of how Jesus responds, but because of how we think other Christians will respond. We think that other Christians will respond to our doubts with shock or, or with correction and with ridicule. And I guess that happens sometimes because, you know, there's, Perceptions based in reality somewhere along the way, but most of the time, I, 
I don't think we really respond to each other that way, Casey. But regardless of how Christians respond to our doubt, Jesus is never intimidated by our doubt. No matter how silly or unacceptable or irreverent they might seem to us or to others. Instead, you know what Jesus does? He shows up in the middle of it. Behind all of our locked doors, and it's not a time for condemnation. It's not a time for correction. It's not a time where where Jesus curls his lip in disgust and disdain and says, I told you so, Thomas. You should have believed me. Instead, it's this intimate moment between a loving God and a broken human being. It's a moment for healing and it's a moment for restoration. It's a moment whenever hope comes back to life. Now, folks, only God, only God can truly heal doubt. Because contrary to what we think, doubt cannot be reasoned away. Because doubt's not a problem of the mind. Doubt's a problem of the spirit. And I'm doing this because I don't really know where it is. But like he did for Thomas, we never know when or how Jesus is going to step into our doubts, but he will. He will. I know he will. When we like Thomas, whenever we're living in that in that week or that month or that year or that season of life, however long it is before Jesus reveals himself and, and we're living in the middle of our doubt. Christianity is not a lifestyle that's wrapped up in this pretty package. And it often brings, like my teaching, more questions than answers. It often means walking through seasons of doubt. And if, it, if that's what it is that makes Thomas and the rest of us losers, then we are in very good company. Martin Luther, C.S. Lewis, John Wesley, you go down the line, every spiritual giant has walked through a dark night of doubt. Thomas just didn't sugarcoat his. I've got this thing I do. Some of you that are close to me have probably heard it before. Whenever somebody's just brutally honest, um, I'm trying to think of an appropriate way to say it. Uh, oh, let's just go this way. At work, somebody says, I absolutely cannot stand that woman. She is so such as, and I was just like, well, don't sugarcoat it, man. Just tell us how you really feel. Thomas didn't sugarcoat his doubts. He told us how he really felt. He wrestled with them. But in doing so, he wrestled with God. And God showed up. And God met him there. William Barclay said, and I'm, I'm almost done. William Barclay said this. He said, when a man fights his way through his doubts to the conviction that Jesus Christ is Lord, he has attained to a certainty that the man who unthinkingly accepts things can never reach. Doubt must be explored, not ignored. Facing doubt is an exercise of faith. And as with any other exercise, this one makes us stronger. As with any other exercise, we don't like to do it.
doubting Thomas. What a loser. We're just like him. So here are your next steps for this week. Uh, for those of you in next that choose to participate on a weekly basis, for those of you who are in the adult class that would just like to engage in the novelty, um, I try to give our folks uh, something every week that's just really practical and easy. Um, well, maybe not always easy, but really practical as a means to uh, do something that will spurt some spiritual growth and, and move you a little bit farther down the line and closer to Jesus. And I always make them write stuff down, and they never do it, but I keep hoping and praying that they will. But, but here's what I'm, here's I'm going to ask you to do. I want you to take five minutes. Sometime this week, take five minutes. Sit down with a pen, a piece of paper. And I want you to write down your doubts. I don't care what they are. Just write them down. And then I want you to take that piece of paper, hold it in your hand, and I want you to say, Jesus, these are the doubts that I have. And I'm not sugarcoating it. I'm not ignoring it. This is what I have problems with. Will you help me? Will you give me what I need? And the answer will come. I don't know how. I don't know when. I don't know where. But it will come. Because if he did it for Thomas, he'll do it for every single one of us. You believe that, Tommy? I believe it. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time that we've had together today. And thank you for opening your word, not just to our minds, but to our spirits, because this is a spiritual book. And if we're going to have revelation, it can't come through the mind. It's got to come through the spirit. So let that revelation come. Lord, if there's somebody in here this morning that's, that's struggling with doubt because of hurt, because of old pain, because of old wounds, because of things that happened to them years ago that they still just don't understand, God, engage with them this week Today, right now, engage with them. Lord, and start talking to them. Show yourself to them in the way that they need so that they can get past that doubt and keep moving forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for entertaining us today. You've been great. We love you. And uh, just don't go anywhere. Big church here in about 10 minutes. God bless you.